We turn to the book of Jude. Sometimes we would just say the letter according to Jude in one chapter. Verses some certainly larger books of the Bible, but nonetheless it is the 26th book of the New Testament. So if you just see Revelation, just turn left and you'll camp on this letter, probably could fit on one piece of papyri paper. Someone entitled the book of Jude, almost unwritten, seldom read. And you get the little puzzle there. He had a change of, of sermon, change of theme moment. He wasn't going to write about earnestly contending for the faith, but I suppose that it is not well read, or even it's seldom read. I hope that one day we can see Jude in heaven and say, we, we read your book publicly and we studied it together. Uh, you, were, you were pretty fierce, but your heart was tender as we find him calling believers that he's writing to beloved, loved ones three times. The first verse is Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ. We believe he was not Jude or Judah the apostle, but and certainly not Judas Iscariot, who is who's dead, but Jude, a half brother of the Lord Jesus. Jesus had four brothers, and at least I would say three sisters, because it says all his sisters are with us in one text and all usually refers to more than two. So they had a big family. They had at least eight children, Joseph and Mary. And so Mary was not a perpetual virgin. It's, it's a myth that Mary was a goddess or that she was a perpetual virgin. She was a, a sinner saved by grace. She was born again. And what would she be doing if she came here and saw all those bathtubs behind her facsimile statues? She would be a Protestant. She would be protesting. But Jude could have gained a lot of attention by calling himself the brother of Jesus Christ, but he calls him the slave, himself the slave of Jesus Christ. Not worthy to be called his brother, as it were. But he was the brother of James. And James may have been the eldest. James, Joseph, Simon, and Jude, or Judah. And so this book is, is written by a half-brother of Jesus. Brother of more familiar um, relative of Jesus, James, who was the pastor of church in Jerusalem. And Jude says he's writing to those who are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. Those are all passives. This is what God does to us. He sets us aside. He sets us apart unto Himself. He preserves us 
in life and death and eternity and He calls us indeed to salvation. And he gives a benediction or a prayer. May God give you mercy and peace and love, especially in the present circumstances. And we know that, He says, we, I know that you have these graces, these gifts in measure. But my prayer is that they'll be multiplied unto you from the Lord. And he says, Loved ones, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, which means that he was uh, giving a lot of effort to write about his previous theme, the common salvation, which means salvation that is shared by all true believers. Common not as in cheap, but common as in um, shared. We're partners in the same gospel of salvation. So he wanted to write something about salvation, something about the new birth or some aspect of the gospel, maybe adoption or sanctification. Though some of these themes are, are dotted throughout his letter, he had a change of heart and mind where he says it was needful, there was an emergency for me to write unto you and to exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. He had a change of sermon moment. Those things happen in life when, for instance, there's an accident in the neighborhood and or some kind of tragedy where a message has to be changed, like a mudslide in, in the nation of, of uh, Great Britain. Not great, the nation of Great Britain, but in uh, my mind, my memory just is fading these days. Not England, not Northern Ireland, not Scotland, not the Isle of Man, but... Wales. So the process of elimination helped. In, in Wales in 1966, a mudslide just dropped. A, a mountain just flowed down and covered a grade school, an elementary school, and killed over a hundred children and their teachers. And the preacher obviously changed their messages. And one entitled his... The whole world lieth in wickedness, in the wicked one's hands. 9-11 had us change our messages. The assassination of a president, a war, terrorism. Here, the infiltration of false teachers was an emergency to change his theme, to change his message. His Original purpose was to speak about the, the, the salvation that they shared together. But he had an emergency, a 911 moment. <clears throat> it was needful for me. <clears throat> what is your emergency, Jude? <clears throat> it's that we need to earnestly contend for something. <clears throat> the word earnestly contend has the graphic word agony in it, it means a struggle. The word is used in Luke 13. A similar word, strive. Struggle to enter into the straight gate. Make sure you're a Christian. Make sure you're in Christ. You don't want to be wrong. 
We can be wrong about many things, but we cannot be wrong without eternal consequences as far as the new birth is concerned. Are we born again? Colossians 4, laboring fervently for you in prayers. Do we agonize for one another in prayer? Fight the good fight of faith. The word fight is the word agony. It says of Jesus, they actually use the word agony, remember, in the Bible. Luke 2.22.44 Being in an agony, He prayed. As it were, sweat, sweat drops of blood. And of course, Jude uses actually a compound word, a word, a preposition in front of agony. So it, the English translators caught it. Earnestly contend, not just contend for the faith. Earnestly contend. This calls for an all-out effort. Bring all your ammunition, all your equipment out. An all-out effort. Normandy. Iwo Jima. So what is so important that we have to earnestly contend for, Jude? He says, the once delivered over to the saints' faith. That's calling for an all-out assault against the enemy. The once delivered over to the saints' faith. In other words, he's saying there's one Bible there's only one once delivered over to the saints' faith. There's only one way of salvation. There's only one true theology. One God. One Gospel. One Christ. And he calls it the faith. It's once delivered over to the saints. It's been delivered over by the Lord Jesus Christ to His apostles and to us. It's the faith. It's a belief. It's not our believing that's in, in mind here. It's belief. It's a body of doctrine. It's the true religion. It's not our believing. Now, our believing is, is we often find that in, in the New Testament. I have not found so great faith in Israel. That's believing. The faith, thy faith hath made thee whole. Believing. Saving faith. Have faith in God. That's talking about our believing, subjective faith. Faith cometh by hearing. And so on. But this is talking about a system of belief. Our belief. Continue in the faith. One faith. One baptism. It says there in Ephesians 4, verse 5. One faith. One body of truth. One message in the Bible. Saving Grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul would say, I have kept the faith. Yes, he kept believing, but that's not what he's saying in 2 Timothy. I have kept the truth. I have preached the truth. I have believed the truth. I have promoted the truth. I have not been a false teacher. And Jude later will call it the most holy faith in verse 20. So Jude uses it as, a, as the word faith as a body of doctrine, a theology. And it's worth fighting for because the devil wants to dilute the message or replace the message or seek to destroy the message. Now, Jude has many beliefs that really fall under the category of the faith. 
It's amazing how brief a letter is, but how potent, how packed it is with truth. Ponder some of the beliefs under the faith in the book of Jude. Monotheism, God the Father and Jesus Christ. One God, but they're both divine. Even the Trinity is inferred. Verse 1, God the Father and Jesus Christ. And then verse 20, the Holy Spirit is mentioned. God's sovereignty. Verse 4, the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And what J.I. Packer said, whatever happened to hell? Have you ever seen or read that book? And it's a question that should be asked in an exclamation today. Whatever happened to hell? Verse 6 speaks about everlasting chains. Verse 7, eternal fire. Verse 13, the blackness of darkness forever. You see doctrines found in the book of Jude. Indeed, whatever happened to hell? I remember witnessing to someone last year and asking him about his church and basically he was saying, well, all churches are good. I said, really? I said, when's the last time your, your minister preached on hell? And he didn't lie to me. He had a blank look on his face and he didn't have any memory of any message on hell. If I'd asked him, when's, how often does he preach on heaven? He probably would have said almost every week. And it's good to preach on heaven. I don't believe the statement, and you probably have heard it before, that Jesus preached more on hell than heaven. That's just not true. All you have to do is look in a concordance under hell and heaven, and you see he mentions heaven more than he mentions hell. But it is true that Jesus preached more about hell than anyone else that we find in the Bible. And doesn't he have the right to do so as the one who created the lake of fire? Judgment day is found in the book of Jude. Verse 6, the judgment of the great day. Verse 15, God will execute judgment upon the ungodly. Angels, the study of angels. Michael and the devil are found in verse 9. The second coming of Christ. Enoch, who was way back in the book of Genesis, one of the early patriarchs, actually is recorded here as preaching on the second coming and he was almost 4,000 years before the first coming. And yet he preaches something that's going to happen over 6,000 years from then. And yes, he does preach on he heaven. Verse 21, eternal life. So in this little book, it's packed with doctrines of the faith that we need to contend for. But the faith is referring to all the biblical doctrines as it were in a package that is necessary for, for one to be found in Christ and to have the hope of everlasting life. And what we find in Jude is, is very similar to what Peter preached in, as recorded in 2 Peter chapter 2. And what would be a good study for everyone would see the similarities and the differences between 2 Peter 2 and the book of Jude. And it's Probable that Jude was actually reading Peter and not vice versa. Um, but that's a matter of, of, of debate, perhaps. But if, if you have columns, the similarities between Peter and Jude are immense. Peter talks about false teachers among you, 
Jude says certain men are crept in unawares. Peter talks about damnable heresies. And Jude's equivalent perhaps is their dreamers. They turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. Peter speaks of denying the Lord who bought them. Jude speaks of denying the only Lord God. Peter speaks of Sodom and Gomorrah, and so does Jude, about them enduring or experiencing the everlasting fire. Peter speaks about angels in hell. Jude speaks about angels reserved in chains. Peter reserved unto judgment, the judgment of the great day in Jude. Peter, they despise government. Jude, they despise dominion. Peter, they're self-willed. Jude, they're walking after their own lusts. Peter, they speak evil of dignities. Jude, they speak evil of dignities. Peter, angels bring not a railing accusation against them. Jude, Michael does not bring a railing accusation against the devil. Peter, they're brute beasts. Jude, they're brute beasts. Peter, they're spots and blemishes. Jude, there's spots in your feasts of charity. Peter mentions Balaam and his donkey. Jude mentions Balaam and his, his covetousness, reward of unrighteousness. Peter mentions clouds. Jude, they're clouds without water. Peter mentions that they feast with you. And Jude mentions that they're feasting in the feast of charity, that they are spots. And then there are differences between Peter and Jude. Like I said earlier, Peter speaks about hell, but it's actually not the word Hades or Gehenna. It's the word Tartarus. It's the only time it's mentioned. And it's possible that it's referring to the fact that there is a, a compartment in Hades that is reserved for some fallen angels. Peter also mentions Noah, preacher of righteousness, Lot, that God will deliver the just and reserve the unjust. That Peter mentions wells, describes false teachers as wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest, and he also likens them to dogs that return to their vomit and pigs to their mire. And Jude has some differences from Peter mentioning Egypt and the Exodus, homosexuality, going after strange flesh, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire, it's present tense. He mentions Cain and Korah. He likens the false teachers to trees without fruit, waves foaming out their shame, wandering stars or planets. He mentions Enoch prophesying of Christ returning with ten thousands of His saints. And the saints may be referring, sometimes angels are also referred to as holy ones. So it might be a combination of saints and angels, although he may not have known the distinction at that time. And then he mentions the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so a very fierce um, expression from Jude about false teachers and false teaching And we always need to be on our guard. Don't ever think that we're past infiltration. That we're past the threat of false teachers. And we can find them on the radio. We can find them 
on the internet, on the television. We can find them in the best of churches. We can find them in our homes. But we're to be different. But you, beloved, Jude writes, as he, as he pronounces a woe upon false teachers, he concludes with statements like verse 17, but beloved, You should be different. You should remember the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. We should not be taken unawares. We've been warned, verse 18, that there will be mockers in the last time who will walk after their own ungodly lusts. And he's saying that these false teachers form cliques, verse 19. They separate themselves. They know they can't sweep the whole congregation in at a time. And isn't it interesting that they don't, they don't uh, end with liberal churches. He's writing to true believers, solid churches. The devil knows he has the liberal, unbelieving churches with, with apostate clergymen in the pulpit. He's got them where he wants them. He's, his target is those who are Believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who are faithful to the once for all delivered unto the saints' faith. And so, he says that they're going to separate themselves. What does that mean? That they distinguish themselves, but it perhaps is also referring to the fact that they do seem to magnetize themselves so that others might be drawn to their personalities or to their new doctrines, or to their reworked doctrines of the faith. They're sensual. The bottom of, of, at the end of the day, the bottom of their hearts, they're sensual. They're immoral. They have not the Spirit. Point blank, he calls these unbelievers, these false teachers, unbelievers. He says they're not saved. And how often have you heard people say, you can't call someone saved or unsaved, at the end of the day, you'll never know until you get beyond death. And yet, Jude is writing to those who are sanctified, preserved, and called. He's writing to believers that he knows are in Christ. They're unsaved. But you again, but you beloved, You need to build yourselves up on your most holy faith. Keep preaching the doctrines of the Bible. Don't fall for what's happening today. We preach principles and generalities and the front page. Preach on salvation by faith alone, through Christ alone, through the Scripture alone. Preach on hell. Preach on heaven. Preach on all the aspects of the Gospel. Leave none behind. What does he call it? Preach the whole counsel of God. There shouldn't be a doctrine that we might propose and one of us should not say, you know, I haven't heard that in five years in this church. Can it be said that this church hasn't heard about heaven in five years? Or hell? Or all the aspects of the Gospel, whether they be regeneration or adoption or conversion or sanctification or um, glorification or union with Christ or assurance of salvation. We should be preaching the whole counsel of God. Build up yourselves on your most holy faith. Notice 
how he, he uh, mounts the descriptions of our faith. It's not only the once delivered unto the saints' faith, it's most holy. He's separating it from all the other faiths. And yet how often you hear people say, I have faith. Or I have a faith. What faith do you have? Number one, what is your body of doctrine? Is it merely the, the, uh, the church's doctrines? The church's tradition? Like Rome? And you say, I have faith. Faith in what? If it's talking about your belief. Faith in who? Faith in whom? Faith in what? We build ourselves up. That means you can't build yourself up Unless you have, unless you have a new new brick every day, as it were, every week that we're building up our most, we're edifying one another, and it's the word of God that edifies us. And He says, "Beloved, pray. Don't just say prayers. Pray in the Spirit. How do I know I'm praying in the Spirit? Well, we pray to the Holy Spirit that our prayers will be spiritually minded and spiritually focused." And biblically centered. Brother and sister, don't abandon the prayer meeting. Don't abandon your prayer classes. The church needs the prayer meeting all the more because it's coming toward the end. And the devil is going to send more and more false teachers out. And he's going to attack more and more. Praying in the Holy Ghost. It says of the early church, and it should not say anything less of the latter church, they continued steadfastly in doctrine, notice, in the faith, in the body of doctrine, in the doctrine of the apostles, in fellowship, in breaking of bread, and here we're having the Lord's table, in prayers, and the, the word is plural, and many, most believe it's speaking of prayer meetings. They used to have prayer meetings daily. And now the weekly prayer meeting is, is no longer frequented. Is the church trusting in our in our tradition, are we just assuming the Lord's going to protect us? Are we assuming because the church has been sound for years, it will continue to be so without effort, without means? And then he says, look, there's a personal responsibility of keeping yourselves in the love of God. Make sure you stay in the shadow of the cross. Make sure that you... That you, that you lean on Jesus' bosom in your Bible studies, in your prayer times, in your fellowships. Stay close to the Lord. Keep yourselves in the love of God. There's effort. There's personal responsibility there. Brother and sister, let's not backslide. Let's not continue in our easily besetting sins. Let's not let days go by without repentance of our sins. Keep ourselves in the love of God. Say, how? Cry out, Lord, pour out Your love in my heart. Paul prayed that their love might abound more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. Let's keep ourselves in the love of God by looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. While your knees are down, your eyes are on that great day. You and I have a view of eternity. We keep eternity in view. We have a judgment day mentality. All these things are important for us as features for earnestly contending for the faith. It's not just facing these false teachers and rejecting their false doctrines. It's personal holiness. It's doctrinal integrity. 
It's faithful preaching. All these things combined together for us to agonize earnestly for the ones delivered unto the saints' faith. And yet in all your contending, don't be contentious. He tells us, look what he says. After all this, this focus, this effort on keeping yourselves in the love of God and praying in the Spirit and building up yourselves in your most holy faith and looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus unto eternal life. Notice, he says, don't just have a tough hide. Have a tender heart. And if some have compassion, making a difference. He says, don't lose your compassion for souls that are deceived, that are being drawn away by false teachers. And making a difference doesn't mean your compassion is going to make a difference like we would use making a difference. Making a difference means uh, some having a compassion, putting a difference between those who need compassion and those who need just just a lashing, as it were. They need truth between the eyes. That's the idea of, make, of, of making a difference. You're, you're discerning people as you speak to them. Some people need... It's like Jesus said. He, 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 was, said, he was said not to break a bruised reed or quench a smoking flax. Those are the people you have compassion toward. But then there were others that He said, go and sell all your possessions and come and follow Me. Or... Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man, follow Me. Let the dead bury their dead. Those are the ones that need it between the eyes. So we need to make a difference. Showing compassion or being bold and, and blunt. Both take wisdom and both take a heart to deny ourselves. And He says in others, and He uses the Versus compassion. Others save with fear. Yank them out of the fire is the idea. But don't be beware that you don't get burned by the fire. It's like it says in Galatians 6 that um, Galatians 6 1 to bear, bear burdens, but spare, or considering yourself lest you also be tempted. And I'm missing the first part of the verse. But he warns when you're helping others, don't be drawn in yourself by the sins that you're trying to help others escape from. It's so easy. You know, you're counseling someone about uh, immorality and, it, and how often ministers and counselors have been drawn into immorality by counseling people, trying to get them out from immorality. And other areas as well that we, we save them with fear. In other words, with concern, with, with a dreadful fear that will be pulled in. So he says, pull them out of the fire. Yank them out. Hate the garment that's spotted by the flesh. Love their souls, but hate, hate the sin that they have, they have fallen to. and The garment that's been spotted by the flesh. So Jude is, is giving a warning to you and me negatively and positively, how to deal with false teachers and those that have been affected by them who desperately need salvation. And you see here that many of them, in order to be saved, first have to be pulled away from the false teachers. It's not simply a matter, well, we'll save them while they're 
deceived. No, first, in many ways, it's pulling them out. But then be careful that when they're pulled out, that they're converted because the Bible talks about someone filled with demons and he's exercised, but he doesn't have the Holy Spirit replace the demons. And then later he gets a worse condition than he had before. And it's not saying here that a person needs to be de-indoctrinated, a false doctrine before he can be saved. But the idea is to pull him away from false teaching and get him to listen to true teaching. And that's often a problem in many of these cults. You can't get them away from their indoctrination of the cult. We listen to what the Bible says. Just focus on what the Scripture says. Remember a mother sent a friend of mine, Jacob, to her son that was being pulled in by the Jehovah Witnesses. And she tried many and we said to her, we have no power to help your son. We'll try, but good people have tried. It's the Lord that's going to turn this man. And we went from every angle and we thought we failed. We thought, well, we're just another number. We tried and we prayed for this man. But she told us later, one text, one text split it wide open in his mind. And it was Acts chapter 20 where it speaks about the blood of God. Take heed unto yourselves and unto the the flock over which the Holy Spirit hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which He hath purchased with His own blood. It speaks of God's blood. And the Lord used Scripture to break open that man. And you never know. But the point is, we got him away from the cult. As it were, we pulled him out of the fire. And we sat him down and said, look, this is what the Bible says about what you're being taught. Oh, that we could get to people and explain the Gospel and pray that the Lord would rid them of the damnable heresies. Brother and sister, let's never think that you and I cannot sink or backslide. He gives this benediction at the end and it's actually also a doxology. Now, in Him that is able to keep you from falling, not just those you're helping. Notice He says, you and me. God has had there have been good men and women who have served the Lord for many years and they they didn't end well. Look at Solomon. Look at Lot. They didn't end well. We need to pray and plead with the Lord. Lord, keep us from falling. Present us faultless before the presence of Your glory. And may it be with exceeding joy, not by the skin of our teeth, as it says in Corinthians, saved yet so as by fire. Oh, I want to be saved and have exceeding joy when I see the Lord. Lord, don't let us lose what we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Let us fight the good fight of faith and lay hold on eternal life. May it be to God's glory, verse 25, to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. And Jude can end on such a confident note that he, was, he wrote this of the Lord. 
Amen. May it be so. May it be so. We come to the Lord's table, which is no small matter as far as us preparing to go into the world again. That we commune with Christ. Jude, I believe, calls it a feast of charity. It's a feast of love. It's a feast where you and I experience the love of Christ and the love that we have for one another in remembering His body and blood. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of Me. In other words, I want this to be a loving recollection. He doesn't say, don't make this a funeral. You know, sometimes people can make the Lord's Supper a funeral for the Lord. We never read that. He doesn't say, do this with sorrow for me. What did he say on the way to Golgotha? Weep not for me. Weep for yourselves. The sorrow that we should have, brother and sister, that he died for our sins. It was our sins that put in there. That's why he says, examine ourselves. How can I have remaining sin, unconfessed sin, when I'm remembering a Savior who died for my sin? A loving recollection. And you know, really, it's a, it's a keeping of the first four commandments, loving God, to come to the Lord's table. We come to the Lord's table to remember the Lord's death. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. He's the Lord. We come to the Lord's table with no crucifixes and statues, but we come with the simple illustrations of the body, of the bread and the, and, and the, and the wine. We don't bow down and worship the bread and the wine. They don't turn into the body and blood of Christ. That's cannibalism and that's idolatry. That's a, a breach of the second commandment. And number three, there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. We remember the Lord Jesus Christ's name at the Lord's Supper. And it's a Sabbath means of worship. It's a way of keeping the Sabbath holy. You know, this is an expression of loving the Lord with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. No funeral service. Jesus is alive. He's raised from the dead. But we sorrow over the sins that nailed Him to the tree. Thank God that we're sinners saved by grace.